All right, well, an MIT linguistics professor was lecturing his class one day, and he said, in English, a double negative forms a positive. However, in some languages, such as Russian, a double negative remains a negative. But there is not a single language, not one, in which a double positive can express a negative. And a voice came from the back of the classroom. Yeah, right. (laughs) You guys got that. That's pretty good. All right. Some of you need to think about it. You'll catch on. All right, this morning we're going to continue our series, Shooting Straight, Shooting Straight. And uh, I've entitled the message, Clearing Up Confusion. Lord, It's just always great just to be in your presence. And if we did nothing else, that's what we were made for, to experience life, your life. You are life itself. And I pray that we would see that, know that, recognize that, and be drawn to that. So I just invite you, Holy Spirit, there's no reason to meet here unless you come in a more powerful way. I continue just to cry out, you are welcome here. Manifest yourself. Bring your life to this place. I ask that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of my head and that I truly would speak your words. I ask that you would give us soft hearts to receive your word because your word brings life, that you would give us ears to really hear, to hear, to hear truth, and then we would receive it, begin to live it out in faith. And so I'm thanking you what you're going to do now in the next several minutes, and I just praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Questions, you know, uh, that's what this series is really about, questions. And a lot of you gave questions and turned questions in, and I just want you to know I appreciate that. Um, Some of you didn't. I don't have any doubt that every one of us has questions, though. Questions about God, questions about Christianity, questions about this book. And uh, this morning, I got some questions about the whole subject of salvation and what does it really entail? What's, what's involved in salvation? And then, of course, the big question came up, can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? You know, the book of Romans is what we call a theological masterpiece, and in the book of Romans, two aspects of salvation are actually covered, and so I'd like to briefly look at those two aspects first in, in the book of Romans. And uh, in, in The first aspect is actually justification. Justification is the first aspect of salvation. And and the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 these stunning words. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. You know, if, if, if you really grasp that, it's absolutely amazing to me how many people refuse or just cannot see the darkness in their own heart? How many people really just can't see their own selfishness and, and, and the damage that it creates um, and, and the destruction just in our relationships? I, I remember when I was a boy, there was a psychologist, a well-known one. Her, her, her name was... Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and, and she made the front page of, I remember, Life magazine, and, 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 and Splash was this picture of her, and then she said, 
inside all of us is a Hitler. Now, this is not a Christian psychologist. Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was a secular psychologist. And she's saying, after all of her studies on human beings, she said, inside each one of us is a Hitler. That's dark. We all have the potential within us to be a Hitler. You know, and it is absolutely astounding to me that if we were to go door knocking in Delmar, the average person would tell you, oh, no, no, at the core of my being, I'm really good. That's a problem. See, that's called delusion. Because at the core of our being, the natural man is darkness, is selfishness. That's why the world's in the condition that it is in. And oftentimes, you know, I will get the question, you know, Pastor, why, and and you heard it up there, why doesn't a good God do something about evil people and the evil in the world? And clearly the inference is, the implication is, they are not one of those evil people. Right? No, right, isn't it? So, now, let's suppose for a moment, as I was thinking about this, let's suppose for a moment that God actually, the God of the universe, got serious, and he was going to deal with the evil people and the evil in the world. Let's suppose he suddenly said, at midnight Tuesday night, he's going to step in, and he's going to stop all suffering caused by evil people. How would he do that? Well, Let's just say God decides to use a tool carried by the average police officer, a taser gun. Skip, can, or, or, Tim, can you put that up? Now, I did a little study on a taser gun. A taser gun shoots an individual with a temporary high-voltage current of electricity. And the makers of the taser gun actually claim that if I, you get a one-and-a-half-second jolt, it will cause intense pain and muscle contraction. Two to three seconds of a shot of electricity will cause you to become dazed and you'll drop to the ground. Anything over three seconds will actually not only drop a person to the ground, but it will incapacitate you for 15 minutes. The makers of the taser gun boast of a 99% compliance rate. In other words, you hit a person with enough electricity and you can almost get them to do anything. So, The deadline comes. Think about this now. The deadline comes. It's Tuesday. And all of a sudden, you start to lie. So what does God do? Bam! He hits you with a half-second jolt of electricity. Try robbing a person. Bam! You get two to three seconds worth of electricity. Think about murder, or you're going to murder someone, and you get enough electricity to absolutely, totally incapacitate you. However, God knows that evil thoughts oftentimes lead to evil action. So any sinister, any lustful, any greedy, any envious, any vengeful thought that you have, bam, he hits you with a half-second jolt of electricity. But God is not finished yet, since it is evil to fail to do good. When God gives us the opportunity to do good, God will zap you with a second of, 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 of electricity for failing to do good and show mercy. Now imagine this were to happen. What would the world look like? My guess is it would be full of twitchy people who are now obeying God like cowering, beaten dogs. Are you sure you want to get Rid of all the evil in the world? Got to think about that, don't you? 
You know, the Apostle Paul writes this. He writes these incredible words, these well-known words starting in Romans 3.23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious sin. You know, if we're honest and truthful, we have all sinned. We have sinned big time. We have sinned in so many ways. We've sinned with our mouths. We've sinned with our minds. We, we sinned with our words. We've sinned with our actions. We've just sinned. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. You know, you, you look at these incredible pass, passages here, and if you really grasp it, what's being said, it's saying that you can never make yourself right with God. There is no human being on this planet that can make themselves right with God. And, and people are always wondering, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, some incredibly ridiculous statement, like, I think all religions lead to God. You ever heard that? All religions, come on, yes, no, just raise your hand, come on. Gee, I, I love this. Just, I, I mean, I can't believe that you haven't heard it. All religions are pretty much the same, and they lead to God. That is patently false. Christianity is hugely different on so many different grounds, but it's hugely different than every other religion in the world. Here's the biggest difference. All the religions of the world have you trying to make yourself right with God. Did you know that? Every religion in the world has you doing something to make yourself righteous to be right with God. Christianity is the only religion that says you cannot make yourself right with God. Only God can make you right with God. That's what that passage is saying there. And that happens, and maybe it's happening right now. That happens when the Holy Spirit begins to move. And he moves on the human heart and he brings conviction. And that conviction so much convicts you. And you, for, for the first time, I, I mean, Satan and the veil comes off your eyes and you go, oh my goodness, I never realized how dark I was. I never realized that the actions and how much pain I've created, not only in my own life, but in the life of others. And, 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 and you're so overwhelmed with your selfishness and being your own little God. It says in the Bible that you repent, I repent. And I'm broken about it and I turn from that and in faith I turn to Jesus Christ. And I recognize the whole reason why Jesus Christ, very God in the flesh 2,000 years ago, put on human skin, led a perfect life, was he was dying for me. He was dying for you. He was paying the price of my sin. Do you know that he actually was my substitute? He spent, he actually experienced hell on the cross. And when I, in faith, all of a sudden grasp that because of the work of the Holy Spirit, Papa, Papa says, you are righteous. You are now justified because I impute the righteousness of Jesus Christ's life upon you. Oh, happy day. I mean, that is justification. That is a happy day. And guess what? My name changes, and I am now St. Frank. You may not think I'm St. Frank, but I'm St. Frank. That is absolutely true, and that's because of what Jesus Christ did 
in my life and he does in your life when you receive that. But, you know, biblically, salvation does not stop at justification. In fact, most of the time when we think of salvation, most people understand it in terms of justification. They say, oh, I I get it. Jesus Christ forgave me my sin and I've got my get out of hell free card, so to speak. But salvation, being saved, is so much more than that. See, the Bible tells us that if you've really been justified, justification leads to sanctification. In fact, the Apostle Paul asks this incredible question in the book of Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Listen to this thought-provoking question. Well then, should we keep on sinning, that is, living like the non-believing Gentiles, so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Now, that's twisted logic. That is just absolutely twisted. I've actually heard people say, well, actually, I glorify God. The more I sin, the more I glorify him because he can show his grace. Now, that is just really twisted thinking. In fact, Paul is horrified because he says in verse 2, he goes, of course not. That's ridiculous thinking. And what Paul is saying is he's saying in Romans, if God has truly justified you, then he's going to sanctify you. They're inextricably linked. God will not just declare you righteous. That's justification. He is also going to make sure that you look like Jesus, that I look like Jesus. That is sanctification. You know, even in Paul's day, people didn't understand grace. It was amazing the number of questions that I got on the subject of grace. People just asked me, several people asked me, what is grace? What is grace? And then they asked, how does grace work? Those are great questions. And, and part of the problem that we have in American Christianity is we confuse mercy with grace. Mercy, please listen to this now. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do, do deserve. Football season is upon us, if you haven't noticed. How many here are Buffalo Bill fans? Just come on, raise your hand, you cowards. Come on, raise them high. My condolences to you, okay. Somebody has to be a Buffalo Bill fan. In 1991, the Buffalo Bills were actually in the Super Bowl. I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember who they were playing? They were playing the New York Giants. They lost that game 20 to 19. 20, it, it, no, it was a heartbreaker. Now, most of you probably don't remember the game, and why would you? But it was nearing the end of the game. Buffalo was driving And with eight seconds left, they decide to try a 47-yard field goal to win the game 22-20. to On the field walks a man by the name of Scott Norwood. He was the field goal kicker for the Buffalo Bills. Can you imagine the entire weight of the Super Bowl is now riding on this guy's shoulders? But that's why they paid the field goal kicker the big bucks, right? You're supposed to make these field goals in high-pressured situations. Here's what happened. Can you play the video, Tim? Wide right. 
You don't want to see that as a field goal kicker. Wide right. No, no, no. You have no idea. I was reading about this. Norwood was absolutely devastated. But you know what he was most afraid of? He actually had to go back to Buffalo and see the fans. And Norwood said this. Can you, he said, I did not know what to expect. I just wanted to hide. The team shows up in Buffalo. There's 30,000 fans. He gets off the bus. And here's what Norwood hears. We want Scott. We want Scott. We, and it got louder and louder. And he, he would later say, he go, I mean, he was absolutely, totally blown away. He said, I deserved condemnation. But the Buffalo fans, they showed me love. That's mercy. That's mercy. You see, we sin. We mess up. I don't know about you, but when I do, sometimes I feel like, like, like God's huge axe is just going to come down upon me. And it doesn't. You see, that's mercy. And experiencing mercy is a wonderful thing. But you know what Scott Norwood really needed? He needed grace. You say, what do you mean by that? Because you see, grace is power. He needed power to actually the ability to make the field goal. Wouldn't that have been better if he made the field goal? Would you rather have mercy or would you rather have grace? See, I'd rather have grace. I want the power to overcome. So God gives us grace. He gives the believer grace so that you and I have the power to be victorious to overcome sin. Now, when people think of grace, though, they often terms think of, oh, you know, I messed up. I need a mulligan. And many people see the Christian life as a kind of perpetual mulligan. You know, God is handling, handing one mulligan out after another mulligan, after another mulligan, after another mulligan. And, and God is the cosmic mulligan man. Think about it. That is not grace. That is not grace. Grace, biblically, is God giving us something good, something beneficial that we do not deserve. Now, again, many Christians hear this and go, oh, you're talking about blessings, pastor. You're talking about God giving me the house that I want, the job that I want, the car that I want, you know, the vacation that I want. They may be blessings, but you know what? Quite often those are curses. Have you ever thought about that? What? Are you kidding me? Getting the house I want? Getting the job I want? Getting the spouse I want? Getting everything that I want? Let me tell you, quite often it's a curse. You know why it's a curse? Because you see, it causes you to leave God and get immersed in the world and tied into this world. And it actually turns out to be a curse. It actually begins to kill you. It begins to kill your life. And, and, and so many Christians just simply do not understand that. You know, so what is grace? Let's look at an interesting passage that's misunderstood in, in Luke chapter 11 when we talk about what is grace. It starts in verse 5. Now listen to this. Then, the teaching, then teaching them more about prayer, Jesus used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door is locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you, but I tell you this, though he won't do it for uh, friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, 
He will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. You know, people look at that. We recognize who we are. We're, we're, we're the needy neighbor, right? We're the one that needs the loaf of bread. Then I ask him, well, who is the neighbor who's got the bread but won't get up? Someone said, Jesus, God. And I go, are you kidding me? Wait, are you, are you telling me that if you go to Jesus, you know, he might grudgingly want to help you? Is, is that the, your picture of God? See, all too often, that is our picture of God. We're thinking, well, I got to keep knocking. I got to keep banging, man. Because uh, God, God, he's stingy. He's a jerk. See, we misunderstand the passage. Look what Jesus says, though. See, we got to take it in context. So he says, but he says, so I tell you, keep on asking, and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be open. You know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying God is different than human beings. God wants you to come to him. Come to him. Come to him with your request. Seek, ask, and knock. Now, why does he ask you, though, to keep knocking? Why doesn't he just answer right away? Have you ever wondered about that? Yes? No? Why do you think he has you keep asking and knocking? Because, okay, we're getting tongues now, okay, but think about it. When you keep asking and knocking, all of a sudden you begin to think about it. What do you realize? A lot of times we realize, I don't need it, what I'm asking for. We thought we needed it, but we don't need it. Here's what you do need, though. Here, watch how Jesus answers this now. This is great. Your fathers, okay, you fathers, if your children ask you for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask you for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, do you know what the answer is to all your prayers? Listen to me. Do you know what the answer is to all your prayers? The Holy Spirit. (laughs) See, I know what you're thinking. I I wish we could put it up on a screen. You're going, no, no way is the Holy Spirit. I know he's good, but he's not that good. And, And there's some women sitting here right now. You don't understand. My husband's a jerk. I need God to fix the jerk. And God says, no, that's really not what you need. What you need is the Holy Spirit. The first thing is is you need supernatural wisdom to deal with the jerk. Then you know what else you need? You need supernatural love. Who's going to, see, see, you're, you and I are off of the answer to our prayer. We just don't get it. So imagine if a wife not only got supernatural wisdom, but supernatural love for a husband. She began to be patient with him. She began to be kind to him. She, she actually forgave him. No, I mean really forgave him for being a jerk. You know what will happen to the husband more than likely? Guess what It's going to happen to him? He's going to begin to change. His heart's going to begin to soften. And you know what you need most of all? Perseverance. Not to give up on the jerk. And you keep doing these things, and the husband changes. See, God so often wants us to be the answer. I, I, someone's going to say, well, okay, 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 fine, fine. I lost my job. I need a job. 
You know what the easy part is? Getting you the job. You know what the hard part is? Trying to get you to see yourself and why you lost the job. (laughs) It wasn't me. It was a jerk boss. How good of an employee were you? How many of us really, when we go to work, would you, would you want, let's imagine you were your own boss. Would you want you as an employee? No, come on. Would you want you as an employee, really? Do you know the vast majority of American workers are negative? No, they're a pain in the gluteus maximus. And see, what we really need is the Holy Spirit to reveal to us, wow, I need to be thankful How many of us really have a thankful spirit? And say, hey, you get up in the morning, you go, Lord, thank you for this job. I thank you for my boss. I thank you for my coworkers. I'm asking you to bless them. See, what we really need the Holy Spirit to do in us is begin to work on us to begin to develop character, a thankful spirit, humility, so that when he gets me the job next time, I not only am able to keep the job, but I'm able to be a, a vibrant witness for Jesus. Hmm? Oh, you go, oh, okay, okay, fine, fine. What about my family members who aren't saved? I've got unsaved family members. I want you to save them. What do you need? You need, you need the Holy Spirit more than ever because in John chapter 16, who brings the conviction? You? How many wives or husbands think that they're the Holy Spirit? How's that working for you? No, we're turning people off left and right in our home. No, we, we, we really are because we're playing the Holy Spirit. And see, what we really should be praying for is, Holy Spirit, we, I just need you to come. Not, not, and I, not, not to blast my husband or my wife or my children, but you want them to win. I don't want them to spend eternity in hell. Please bring conviction to them. See, you do need the Holy Spirit. I could go on. I'm going to tell you what you and I absolutely need is we need the Holy Spirit. He is the answer for everything in our lives. We just simply don't believe that. You know, it's very interesting. In, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, uh, we, we get a picture of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, he gets this incredible vision of heaven. How many here would like to have a vision of heaven? You know, I would, but you know there's a price for it? Did you know there was a price for that, for, for, for that heavenly vision? Pride begins to develop within us. You know, it's amazing what happens to us when, when something, you know, God does something or we think that, you know, God somehow exalts us. We immediately get prideful and, and, and we think, wow, it, it, it's me. I'm really great. God needs me. And we get prideful. No, we, we, we begin to get arrogant. That was beginning to happen to Paul. So watch what God does. Tim, can you put up the verses? Watch this. So, whoop, go back. I need those verses. And, yep, there we are. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. You know, there's been so much, you know, guessing as to what that thorn in the flesh was that Paul received. And, you know, some people believe that 
he was suddenly struck with homosexuality, seriously. Other people believe it was his poor eyesight. The reality is the scripture doesn't speak to it. And guess what? If the scripture doesn't speak to it, it's best to leave it alone. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. But here's what we do know. It was so irksome to Paul. Can you imagine three times he cries out to God, God, please take this away from me. And God finally says to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Now, let's say you heard that. You know what I think Paul said? Okay, great. What does that mean? And God said, it means, see, we call this parallelism. My power is made perfect in your weakness. I'm going to give you power, Paul, not only to endure it, but to overcome it. You see, God isn't interested in spiritual lightweights. He wants spiritual heavyweights. How do I become a spiritual heavyweight? How do you become a spiritual heavyweight? It's by giving us grace in our lives. You see, when he gives us grace in our lives, what he's doing us is he's giving us power. And we see that that power is right there in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And who gives us that power? Jesus tells us what? In Luke chapter 11, who gives us the power? The Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is always the answer to your prayer. That's what I always pray for. I always say every morning now, I just say, Lord, please decrease. I need more Holy Spirit. No, that's all you need. I need more you. You're going to be a better witness. You're going to be a better husband. You're going to be a better wife. You're going to be a better parent. You're going to be a better employee. But see, we don't get it. We don't understand that. That is absolutely what we all need. So the equation looks like this. You have a problem, and it's not up there. I don't care what your problem is. Just think about it. What you need to ask for is, Lord, I do need your grace because that equals your power, and I need your Holy Spirit to release that power so I can live in victory. Do you understand? God wants you to live in victory. He wants me to live in victory. You got to grab hold of this. I need to grab hold of what this is saying. So, you know, when we talk about being saved, what we're talking about is not just being justified, declared righteous. We're, we're, we're also being talked about sanctified, looking like Jesus, becoming like Jesus. In fact, it says this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Quick. For God foreknew his people in advance. Why did he choose them? I wish we had more time because people get just bent out of shape about that election. What does he choose us for? To become like his son. The whole basis of becoming saved, the greatest glory that you can give God is to look like Jesus. That's the whole business that God is in. And you know, the equation looks like this. So I just very quickly, I'm going to move to the, to the challenge. So, so the, 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 this, put it up. Now, the next equation. The salvation chain. The salvation, well, he's got, there it is. See, justification leads to sanctification. And you know what we're waiting for? You know when that happens? Hmm? That's right. When Jesus comes, we're going to get a new resurrected body, and we're going to have a body like his. Can you imagine that moment? So salvation is a glorious chain. It's not just one individual thing. It's that entire chain. All right, now let's move to the challenge. The challenge is this. People ask me, well, can I lose my salvation? Can I lose my salvation? Now, see, if you really understand that, you understand 
that's really not a good question. It's not even a biblical question. It's not in the Bible. You know what the Bible does ask? Yeah, are you really saved? See, that's the because it's a glorious chain. So the real question is, am I really saved or are you really saved? In fact, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Watch this. Can you put it up, Tim? Examine yourselves to see if you're the faith. That is, if your salvation is genuine. Test your self. See, this is the, that, that is scary. That is sobering. And there are so many people running around who think that they're saved and they never were saved. I have tons of people running around. They said, well, I ran up at a Billy Graham crusade. I, I said the sinner's prayer. I got my get out of hell free car. I'm saved. No, you're not saved because it's a glorious change. If, if you are truly justified, then guess what? You are in the process of changing, being sanctified, looking like him. In fact, God gives an incredible promise in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Now watch this. Put it up. And I am, Paul says this, and I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished when the day of Christ Jesus returns. What? No. What an incredible promise that is. Who began the good work in you? Who justified you? God. God's declared you justified. He says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to make sure that you are sanctified, that you look like Jesus, because I'm going to give you a new nature, the power of the Holy Spirit. And yeah, you might have a few hiccups along the way, but trust me, I'll take you to the woodshed. Just read Hebrews. I'll take you to the woodshed. No, no. God is a good parent. The Father is a perfect parent. And he will make sure we're taken to the woodshed. And then he says, I'm going to make sure that when Jesus returns, you're glorified. Now, that, no, no, that's incredible hope. You know, my dad used to blow me away. Because he would say, son, the whole purpose of life is to have money. I just proud to the to have money. Because if you have money, you have it all. You know, then, then, then you can get the things you want. You can do the things that you want. And not only that, you'll have this great nest egg. You'll have this, and when you retire, you can do what you want. And, and so you know what that meant for my dad? It meant that he, he lived on two, really, golf courses, country, and he, and he spent his days playing Satan's game. Then at night, he would sit on his back porch sucking mint tulips, just enjoying the scenery, and then he would travel over the world. But you know what, what, what the sad thing was? Very quickly after he retired, his, his, you know, his uh, health went downhill. Didn't really get to do that much of it, really. And you know... So here's this wealthy guy, has all this, and he dies in a hospice house. How much does he have left in the hospice house? Anybody know? Nothing. He had nothing. <laughs> it's dumb son get out most of it. <laughs> Sisters. No. Nothing. Zero. Nada. That's your hope? No, seriously, that is your hope? That's what you're aiming for, I ask people? 
here's mine. Here's what I'm aiming for. Can you put it up? And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, you can put your own name in there if you're a true believer. Then he said to Frank, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of water of life. All who are victorious, and you will, if you're truly a believer, because of grace, you will be victorious. You will inherit all of these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now, that is hope. That is hope. That's what I'm aiming for. Not a pot full of money and just sitting at the end of your life on some grand nest egg, sucking down mint tools and playing Satan's game. I, I hope you got a better hope than that. This is real hope. This is what I'm looking forward to. I pray you have that. I really do. Lord, I pray that we just grasp what was partially even said. When you save, you save entirely. Body, soul, and spirit. It will be a complete salvation. Ending in your presence. In a realm, in a universe that's beyond comprehension. But in the presence of light that's beyond imagination and life that we just catch a glimpse of, a taste of. And I pray if there's anyone here, anyone here who has not experienced the beginning point of justification, of just having the blinders taken off and seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ, today would be their day. This moment would be their moment. And I just ask for this in your precious name. Amen.